Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can check out all of my written work there at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that looks at more recent movies out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, what have you. You can find the link to that at my website. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast at Quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part series looking at aliens on Earth who have basically taken over our government in insidious ways. Last week, I looked at the miniseries from 1983 called V. This week, I'm going to do, naturally, the follow-up miniseries that came out the following year in 1984, V, The Final Battle. V, The Final Battle, it's not rated. It was released for television, but if you had to rate it, it definitely would be a very strong PG-13, I think, today because of violence, disturbing images, and some subject matter. The runtime, if you compile the three episodes, it was three movies in a row, would be 272 minutes, or about four and a half hours. Mark Singer, Jane Badler, and Faye Grant are the main stars. Michael Durrell, Blair Tefkin, Michael Ironside, David Packer, Robert Englund, and a whole lot more. I'm not going to go into the entire cast because it is a sprawling property with dozens and dozens of speaking parts. Richard T. Heffron gets the director's chair this time out. And the screenplay credited to Craig Buck, Diane Frolov, Peggy Goldman, Brian Taggart, Harry Longstreet, and Renee Longstreet. Now, when the V miniseries aired in 1983, some viewers did feel a bit cheated. It did have an open ending, and there was nothing in the foreseeable horizon on the TV schedule that was going to conclude it. So, luckily, V was a huge enough hit that NBC eagerly anticipated bringing more V to the small screen. But, you know, how did they want to continue? Now, the obvious solution would be to do a weekly series for the 1983-84 to season, which V creator Kenneth Johnson had already anticipated might happen. He had commissioned Harry and Renee Longstreet to revise his spec scripts for the first two episodes of this possible continuation in a weekly serial form. But Johnson was dissatisfied with the budget and the time constraints that were levied upon that, so he told his friend, NBC president Brandon Tartikoff, that they really weren't going to have enough money to do V justice on a weekly schedule. So Johnson suggested instead doing this ongoing series of two-hour movies, maybe a new one every four to six weeks or maybe a couple a year. This way, there would be enough money and time to assure a quality release to the public that they would enjoy while also being able to build up marketing for each particular movie. Tarnikoff did not think that a periodic series of movies would sustain momentum on television. A weekly series built a reliable audience that planned their evenings around it. In the end, though, realizing that the miniseries cost over $3 million for each hour of programming, NBC shied away from giving the series a green light for the 1983-84 season. Even with reusing sets or costumes from the original miniseries, the cost per TV episode was estimated to average about $1.7 million. That made it, by far, at that time, the most expensive show on television. When fans asked NBC why there was no V on their fall schedule... The network claimed publicly that they had polled viewers and they found little appetite for a regular show, but very few people really believed that excuse, given that the miniseries was one of third-place NBC's few indisputable successes with a reported 55 million viewers tuning in. 
Now, Tartikoff wanted one more test of audience interest, and he also wanted to generate further momentum leading into a possible series for the 1984-85 season. So NBC asked Kenneth Johnson for a sequel miniseries. Instead, a three-part story tying up the plot threads of V for release in May of 1984, basically a year almost to the day from the previous miniseries in the important May Sweeps period. Johnson called the principal actors from V. He asked them what they'd like their characters to do in the follow-up. And so he took some of those ideas, as well as ideas of his own. He hired three writers, Craig Buck, Peggy Goldman, and Diane Frolov, to help him build off of the earlier Longstreet scripts to make an all-new miniseries. Johnson felt that this new V script, when it was all said and done, was better than the original. He compared it to Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, inspired by a lot of anecdotes that he had researched on the French resistance during World War II. Titled at that time, V the Conclusion, we discover what happens to the teenage Robin Maxwell's pregnancy with an alien reptile, Mike Donovan's quest to find his kidnapped son, and the resistance's battle to expose the visitors to the public as an evil force draining us of our water and using us for food. Now, Tartikoff, when he read it, he loved the script, but... Warner Brothers, who controlled the television rights, were less than enamored. This seemed a costly and time-consuming production, and they wanted to get something out there cheaply and quickly so they could work on this series deal that they were offered to continue V on television. Warner felt that audiences tuned in for action, not social commentary. Warner had done a miniseries in the past about people living in the Warsaw Ghetto, and few people tuned in. And this story was, to them similarly dark and grim. So Johnson felt it was important to maintain the allegorical message warning of fascism in America, while the suits at Warner really only cared about simple action-adventure genre filmmaking here. So Warner demanded changes to reduce the philosophical tone that Kenneth Johnson was putting into this miniseries. They wanted to minimize the costs as well and to broaden the appeal to bigger audiences. Johnson realized that Warner was never going to make the sequel his way. So he left working with the studio altogether, and that shocked him because he was walking away not only from his lucrative project, but also $500,000 of guaranteed money for the Blind Series commitment. For the producer role, Warner replaced Johnson with the producers of Cujo, the film adaptation of the Stephen King novel, Daniel Blatt and Robert Singer. Blatt claimed that he would emphasize the human aspects of these characters much more, and that's kind of publicity speak for keeping effects costs down by making it more of a soap opera with occasional shootouts. They also hired screenwriter Brian Taggart to retool the script over the next six weeks, changing events and characters more to Warner's satisfaction. Now, NBC, the network that was going to be showing this, though, was unhappy that the original's thematic relevance was being jettisoned here for purely bubblegum entertainment, so they ordered Warner to work some of that stuff back in. However, they were running out of time before the shoot was going to begin, and so it became basically a slipshod effort. By this point, Kenneth Johnson didn't even want his name attached to what they were going to do with his series, even though major elements of his original script were still part of the final product. He retained his created by credit, but for the screen story, he replaced his name with a pseudonym, Lillian Weezer. And Craig Buck, one of the other writers, he decided to credit himself with his middle name, Faustus. Now, for the final script, as it appears on the screen, 
The resistance, the human resistance, is fending off the pressing alien visitors. These visitors are continuing to fool the people of Earth by controlling the media. They are depleting the Earth of precious water, and they're also rounding up humans for food. The resistance scientists do hope that they're going to find a weakness in the overpowering visitor defenses that will help them turn the tide of the war. However, the visitors still manage to gain the upper hand, especially when they capture resistance leader Juliet Parrish who the scheming Diana, one of the leaders within the visitor forces, tries to break her with intense conversion techniques. Meanwhile, Robin Maxwell, dealing with her pregnancy from the lizard-like aliens, is horrified at what kind of baby she will have. I'm not going to get into anything else beyond that, although some of what I'm going to be talking about will have some mild spoilers. Now, shortly before its release, NBC changed the title from V the Conclusion to V the final battle, and that's because they felt that the final battle really grabbed viewers much more than the conclusion. If audiences tuned in with the numbers that they did for the first miniseries, which they reran shortly before airing the final battle, they would fast track the weekly series for the 1984 to 85 season, pretty much for sure. And that provided that they would keep costs down by reusing a lot of the sets and recycling a lot of the effects. Promos for the final battle showed such things that did not make the final cut, including Diana holding a bunny up, presumably to eat it like she did the guinea pig in the first miniseries. But the effects team had difficulty this time out making Diana's mechanical head work, so they nixed the scene. The producers hired future world director Richard T. Heffron. He had only six weeks prior to the shoot to get everything in order. Due to the replacement of a lot of the creative talent from the first film, the rewrites, the the new crew not really having the same rapport as they had with Kenneth Johnson because he had hired a lot of people who had worked with him in television, they quickly fell behind schedule. NBC insisted, though, that the air date be May 6th through May 8th of 1984, and that left Heffron only 65 days total to shoot, which, if it were a movie, that would be sufficient, but this is essentially three movies that he had to make by that time. Scenes needing optical effects were completed first to give the visual effects crew a head start to have it completed by the end. The rest was shot mostly in the order of the script to make it easier to change if they needed to and to avoid reshoots. With about 90 speaking roles altogether, Heffern called V, The Final Battle, the most difficult assignment that he had ever had as a director. But he did keep his composure throughout all of the troubles and carried on with his business, which the casting crew really appreciated from him. The actors had to work long evenings and also weekends to maintain this hectic schedule. They also found many elements of the production to be very difficult physically and emotionally to them. The actors who played the visitors, for instance, in the final battle, bitterly complained about the jackboots. They looked fancy from the outside, but they were actually made entirely of rubber. And when they removed the boots at the end of a 16-hour day, they had to pour out perspiration that had built up after wearing them all day long. The red dust that is used in this finale, one of the ways that the resistance is able to thwart the visitors, it's comprised of flocking that's used primarily in wallpaper or greeting cards. That coated everything that it landed with a sticky residue, which really grossed a lot of people out. And the actors also breathed that into their lungs. They were coughing it out in the middle of the night, a condition that they called red lung. 
Now, due to a ballooning budget, there were several major effects sequences that were changed or taken out to the final product, mostly of shots consisting of flying around over cities with the spaceships, especially this key plot component where the resistance fighters steal some visitor ships and they fly them to all corners of the world. The shoot was very rushed, so they had to improvise and make up a lot of things on the fly to get through it. They really had to take a lot of shortcuts to stay on pace this time out. Now, despite many changes, the special effects shots have improved since the last time out. Leo Lotito continues to impress. He gives the visitors their phony faces, the ones presumably under the actor's real faces. There's also a memorable birth scene for Robin that both enthralled and mortified a viewing public because of this cliffhanger for the second episode of this three-part story. It's kind of one of those things you have to see to believe. There are nifty new ways of doing the battle that are presented here, including an impressive sequence where the visitor spaceship chases and attacks one of the resistance fighters on horseback. And even with cost-cutting efforts, V the final battle, when it was all said and done, was $14 million. And that was pretty much on par, maybe a tick above the first miniseries, but this one did have an extra night of programming, which meant 50% more sponsorship, but also a higher price tag because V was such a big hit the first time out that they could raise the price for advertising with the second miniseries. Now, the final battle retains all of the cast of the first effort, pretty much the main cast anyway, but it adds a few notable actors here. One fan favorite of people who love V is Michael Ironside. He plays Ham Tyler. Now, originally, Ham was written in the earlier draft as somebody who was in a wheelchair, but that did not make the final cut because the incoming writer, Brian Taggart, he was friends with Ironside and he wanted to work him in. He had worked with him on an earlier movie called Visiting Hours, and he wanted more kick-ass heroes on the Resistance side, and he immediately thought that Ironside, with all of his rascally charm, would be perfect. However, the actor, when he came in, refused to play somebody in a wheelchair because his last name was Ironside, which is kind of a derogatory nickname for somebody in a wheelchair, so they rewrote the part so that he would not be in it, which really changed to a large degree, the nature of that character and the reason why he was in the wheelchair. Ironside became, though, a favorite among the cast, except for Mark Singer. Singer and Ironside had constant friction throughout the shoot, as well as into the TV series that followed. That friction, though, did work for the series because they were written to be kind of like frenemies. They were casting aside their ego clashing for a common cause, not only in front of the camera, but it turns out behind the camera as well. Ironside did channel Ham Tyler. Again, years later in Total Recall, he even chose a lot of the same wardrobe, playing the same character in everything but his name. So if you like Ironside in Total Recall, you'll definitely get a kick out of him here. Another popular newcomer to the V franchise here is Sarah Douglas. Sarah Douglas, probably known primarily as Ursa in Superman 2. She plays Pamela, the power-hungry rival of Diana here. Douglas was not keen on doing another sci-fi project so soon after Superman 2, but V was, internationally even, a big deal, so she joined without hesitation when it was offered. However, she was already doing Falcon Crest for CBS at that time, coincidentally also playing a character named Pamela. The producers of The Final Battle, though, worked it out with the producers of Falcon Crest, so Douglas would shuttle back and forth between the sets on a determined schedule. Douglas wore a short nylon wig throughout V, The Final Battle, to differentiate her look, not only from Falcon Crest, but also from fellow brunette Jane Badler. 
Somebody thought that the chemistry between Badler and Douglas was so good in V the Final Battle that they developed a TV pilot for them to work together again on another series shortly after. They were intending to play twins, although Douglas is several inches taller than Badler, and she also has British accents, so how they were going to work that in was kind of curious, but there were too many conflicts with Falcon Crest as far as her schedule, and that did not allow her to do this series with Badler. So Douglas did work together, though, with Mark Singer in 1991's Beastmaster 2. Although Kenneth Johnson disowns the final battle as not really living up to his standards or honoring his original vision, it does remain for many viewers and many fans of V an enjoyable entry. I think the biggest knock on the final battle is that it could have easily been two movies instead of three. Many sequences in this miniseries go on really long, longer than necessary, particularly in the conversion chamber sequence involving Juliet and Diana that seems to go on for a while. And those sequences were extended by Warner Brothers. They actually removed scenes where Juliet and Robert Maxwell delve deep into scientific explanations as to what's going on, as well as a lot of the character justifications for their actions. We never do learn, even though it was shot, we don't learn why Willie, which was Robert Englund's amiable visitor character, is willing to help the resistance. They cut out those scenes, as well as the intended religious subtext of the priest taking the star child, the half-breed, to Diana in the climax. While this is not as noble as the original miniseries, Blatt and Singer, I do think they get a bit of a bum rap for their effort here. This really is not all action, no substance as far as miniseries go. There are some weighty issues that are still presented, including abortion and manipulation of the media and the nuclear annihilation. They are very potently presented here, but what's missing to a large extent is a lot of the subtext regarding fascism. It was re-injected into the screenplay at the last minute, and they had a half-hearted adherence to it by the time they edited the final film. Now, Kenneth Johnson claims to have never watched any of the V material that was made after his original miniseries. He said it would be too painful to endure. He, the metaphor he used was, it was like having your baby raised by a foster family that you didn't trust. He did catch about 30 seconds while he was flipping around television of a scene from The Final Battle where the priest gives Diana a Bible and then she ends up killing him. Now, in Johnson's version, that scene was in there, but the priest was to be a young and very earnest man who moves Diana with his religious teaching, and that conflicts her. But in the final film, he's just this older, stereotypical priest, and there was no nuance to the sequence here, and there was not a pang of guilt to Diana's evil in the end. It was very much just straightforward without a lot of explanation, and it left it up to your imagination as to what was really going on there, because honestly, you really don't have any idea why he brings the star child directly to Diana. Unfortunately, that explanation was cut out. The new version also changed the ending where the rapidly aging human lizard hybrid known as Elizabeth is able to harness mystical powers, neither of her species remotely possess, to save the mothership from self-destructing, something that Johnson did not have in his original story, and it has no thematic relevance to the fascism premise. Johnson's ending featured Diana and Elizabeth escaping in a shuttle to another mothership while Martin, the fifth column visitor, sacrifices himself pulling the self-destructing mothership into space as Mike and Juliet escape in a shuttle, deciding to go to the second mothership because it was leaving Earth, with many of the humans still on board. The ending remains open-ended after an additional change where Frank Ashmore's character Martin, originally scripted to die in a nuclear explosion, instead drives the ship away from Earth, presumably to appear again in the weekly series. Joe Harnell's music here from the first miniseries 
is replaced by Barry Dervorzen and Joseph Conlon, although they only did the score for part one and some of part two. Halfway through the scoring, Dennis McCarthy was hired to finish part two as well as all of part three, except for the intro and the closing credits. And he was brought in halfway because they thought that Dvorzen and Conlon did not provide the right tone that they were looking for. Some of McCarthy's compositions were recycled also for the V television series that came a few months later, as well as some episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which he scored a couple of years later. Now, some additional fun trivia here that I really couldn't work into the body of this review. But one thing, the director, Richard Heffron, he had to continuously tell Faye Grant, who was very enthusiastic while she was doing action sequences, not to actually utter the words, bang, bang, when she pretended to shoot a gun. They didn't want her saying anything and to just shoot the gun and they would add the sound effects later. Ham's beefy sidekick, played by Mickey Jones, originally he was named Chris Faber in the script, but it was changed to Chris Farber because Michael Ironside kept mispronouncing it as Farber. Even though it was scripted that way, they basically say that's one of his aliases. Many years later, George Clooney played a prank on the set of ER during a childbirth sequence. He brought out one of the prop lizard alien babies that were created for the final battle instead of the dummy baby. And when the actress playing the mother saw this, she shrieked at the top of her lungs in absolute horror. One of the many ways they stayed loose on the set of ER. Now, V competed against another lavish miniseries on ABC called The Last Days of Pompeii, and it narrowly bested it. It rated just slightly less than the first V miniseries in terms of total viewers. But given that there were 55 million viewers for the first one, if it only got 50 million for this one, it still was a smashing success ratings-wise. Still, its divorce from Kenneth Johnson's original vision did leave Warner and NBC without a very clear or compelling direction heading into that TV series. And a year after the failure of the Wayward TV series in 1985, Tartikoff admitted to Kenneth Johnson that he was right in thinking that V would not work in a weekly format, and they really should have gone with his initial suggestion, heavily promoted monthly or bi-monthly movies. Tartikoff did admit that it would have been a rating bonanza for many years instead of encountering the fizzle and the loss of fans before the first season completed its run. So for that, I don't think that V, The Final Battle, is as good as the first series. I think that Kenneth Johnson really had a good handle as far as what he wanted, and it very much was very clear to the first miniseries. The only thing that hampered the first miniseries was the rushed amount of time and the lack of money. Those factors, unfortunately, do hamper the second miniseries as well, but compounding all of that is the fact that the story is just not as tight and it's not as good as the first time around. It is still extremely enjoyable on a surface level, but you don't get a lot of the depth that you did get with Johnson's original vision. So for all of that, I will give V, the final battle, three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think it's worthwhile for people who like this kind of miniseries, I suppose. And if you like the first one, I do think that you should probably continue and watch V, the final battle. As a worthy follow-up, I do not necessarily, though, recommend continuing on unless you're very curious or you're just really enamored of this series all in all with V, the TV series that came afterward. I've been watching them with my wife. It definitely is a huge step down from some of the delights that you saw in these first two miniseries. But, you know, if you like these characters and if you were like me who watched them back in the day when I was 12 and 13 years old, there is a lot of nostalgia factor that keeps you going for people who grew up in the 1980s and love this property. So now, by the way, before I go, I do want to mention what happened to the V franchise 
after V, the final battle, went off the air. Obviously, I just mentioned the short-lived V TV series in the 84 to 85 season. It was set basically a year after the events of the final battle. The aliens are driven from Earth, but they're coming back here. Audiences, though, complained that the storyline for the TV series had spread too thin and they started jettisoning it. And after it began to fail miserably in the ratings, Kenneth Johnson, he was begged to come back and try to save the series, but he knew he wasn't going to turn it around. The damage had already been done, so he refused to do that, and it basically ended with a whimper instead of a bang. Now, in 1989, a sequel series entitled V, The Next Chapter was proposed with J. Michael Straczynski as the head writer. The only cast member from the original series that was going to play a significant role in V, The Next Chapter was going to be Ham Tyler, with Michael Ironside returning. However, after Straczynski did about six drafts of the screenplay, Warner Brothers decided against it because no matter what he wrote, the cost of doing it was just going to be too high for their tastes. In 1991, Kenneth Johnson came back. He talked about a conclusion to his original miniseries. He was hoping to get a lot of that original cast back on board. Mark Singer, though, was busy at the time with the Beastmaster sequel, and it remained in development hell for over a decade after that. In 2003, NBC ordered a script for a three-hour television movie revival of V from Kenneth Johnson called V, The Second Generation. He had a lot of ideas in mind. It was going to be set 20 years after the first miniseries, but it was going to ignore the sequel miniseries, V, The Final Battle, as well as the television show. And it was planned for the 2005 to 2006 season sometime. The three principal players, Mark Singer, Faye Grant, and Jane Badler, as well as Robert England, were going to return. But NBC's president at the time, Jeff Gassman, thought that there were not enough people that were going to remember the original miniseries intimately and that it would just be better to reboot it altogether. Now, Johnson was willing to do the reboot if he could follow up that with the sequel with the older actors playing older versions of themselves. But NBC stagnated way too long. And that caused Warner Brothers to pull the proposed $20 million miniseries and to shop it elsewhere at the time. Johnson did turn the V revival script into a novel called the same V the Second Generation, and he released it in 2008. So you can get that wherever you buy your books. He hoped that a TV adaptation of the book would still result. And in this version, the alien race called the ZT, which is also known as the Alliance from the first miniseries, the mortal enemies of the visitors that were sent a signal in the first miniseries by the resistance, thinking that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Humankind has to determine when the new alien race, the ZTs, come down, if they are indeed friends or if they will become the new foe of Earth once the visitors are out of the way. I won't spoil the book for you, but you can go ahead and read the 2008 novel if you're interested in that. In 2009, though, ABC rebooted the V concept altogether into a new series that lasted until 2011, but the rating suffered after its second season. Basically, they didn't even get to complete it. It ended without resolving the story threads. Jane Badler, by the way, joined the cast in its second season as Diana because they wanted to bring back some of the original V fans, but it was not the same Diana, despite having the same name that appeared in the original series, which was kind of a letdown, and her character was basically different too. Mark Singer, by the way, he made an appearance in the last episode of that reboot V property as a different character, which also disappointed a lot of the series fans. He was not Mike Donovan. Now, fast forward all the way to more recent days. In 2018, CBS's newly relaunched Desilu Studios announced its first project called V The Movie, which would be a film reboot with V creator Kenneth Johnson. Johnson had found out that he owned the motion picture rights. He may not necessarily have a lot of the television rights, but he could make movies 
big screen movies if he wanted to. He returned to write and hopefully direct the new cast with John Hermanson and Barry Opper as the producers. However, the person who bought Desi Liu turned out to be kind of a, a scam artist of a sort. He didn't have the money he claimed and it fell through. And so today, Johnson continues to look for independent funding to retain creative control to do v right. He said he wants to do v right, or he's not going to do it at all. So I'm hoping at some point in the next year or two, or maybe within the next five years, we might see, after all, V come back and be done right. But as with all things, I can't really hold my breath because things never quite work out the way you want them to. But I do wish Kenneth Johnson luck in his endeavor to do that for the fans. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review and this look at V, the first two miniseries and its history and a lot of the trivia. And I hope that you enjoyed it along with me experiencing it all over again. I really loved V when I was a teenager. I had not seen it since. And it was a great kick to revisit all of those memories yet again with my family watching as well. So anyway, for next week, I'm going to be continuing on with this look at aliens who are subversively controlling us through the government and other means with a film that kind of echoes a lot of what we saw here in these two miniseries. But this time it's from the mind of John Carpenter with his 1988 film called They Live. So for next week, watch They Live, another really fun movie to watch. And I'll be talking about all of the details on that on the next episode. Now, if you have your own thoughts on V, whether it's the final battle or the original miniseries or even the television show, I love talking about this. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, Facebook page, Instagram. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me anytime you want. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world just ahead of the red dust in 80s movies. (laughs) 